Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm an agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. Today, my special guest is also an agent. We'll be introducing her later. But first, I wanted to say a word about schmagents. What is a schmagent, you ask? Well, you probably have heard this term bandied around or seen it on Twitter because I coined it some years ago, and a lot of people use it now. And it kind of means fake agent, like agent schmagent, not a real agent, a schmagent. So I'm not talking about new agents here. There are plenty of people who are new. They're building their lists. They're at legitimate agencies, but they're just young or they don't have experience yet or whatever, but they are legit. That's not a schmagent. A schmagent usually falls into one of two categories. Sometimes there's also a bit of a crossover. So either they're just clueless, they have no connections or experience, they don't sell books, or they only sell to kind of suspect publishers, publishers that you don't need an agent to submit to, for example. They have no experience in publishing, but they started their own agency anyway. Red flags are you can't find evidence of sales to any major publishers on their website, Their website is full of very obscure authors with no books or books that cannot be found in a bookstore and don't seem like real books or uh, just it's hard to find information about what they've done and what they've sold and who they represent. Believe me, a legitimate agent wants to brag about their client's books. They love nothing more than to talk about their client's books. So if you are um, feeling a lot of obfuscation That's a red flag for sure. Then there's the type two or class A schmagent. (laughs) These are people who are actually scam artists. They're not just inept. They're not just bad. They are criminals. So red flags there. They say you have to pay an editor before they will rep your book. Oh, and they have a suggestion of an editor. And oh, yeah, by the way, that editor is their wife. Or they charge a fee to represent you, or a reading fee, or any other kind of fee. Here's the thing. There's this adage, money flows to the author. Uh, What does that mean? That means agents do not get paid until you get paid. Publishers give you money to publish your work. They don't take it from you. The problem is, a lot of times, authors are dreamers. They have stars in their eyes. Maybe they've been struggling for a long time with getting an agent, or they're just clueless about where to even start, but they want to be published so much. And that makes them easy prey. I know when I sign into my Gmail, I see sidebar ads for scam publishers all the time. And obviously I don't click on them, but if I was a little naive or a little desperate or just like a lot hopeful, I definitely might. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about schmagents. Authors, you really got to do your due diligence when you're researching agents that you're querying because, um, you know, not everybody has your best interests at heart. And it's really sad and upsetting when I get emails from people saying, you know, my dad lost his life savings or, you know, many thousands of dollars because he wanted to be published so much that he paid some scam artist. Uh, And there's, I mean, I can't fix that. I'm sorry, it's sad, but it's not something that can be easily remedied, and certainly not by me, random stranger. So, um, you know, 
That's kind of a downer. I'm sorry. You know, there's lots of great agents, and one of them is going to join me today. Kate Testerman is the president of KT Literary, her very own agency. She's based in Colorado, and she represents books for kids in YA, including authors that you may have heard of, like Maureen Johnson, Trish Dollar. She's amazing. And she's also a good friend. And I'm so glad to welcome Kate today. Kate, let me see if I can get Kate on the line. We're having some technical issues today. Sorry. Hi, Kate. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly well now. Thank you. Amazing. Technology. Woohoo. Woo. So are you ready to answer some questions from the Tumblr? I would love to answer the questions from let's, the Tumblr people. Let's get right into it. Cool. So a, a lot of authors ask, this is asked me all the time, they imagine that all agents live and work in Manhattan. And of course, we know that increasingly good agents don't have to be New York City based as you aren't and I'm not. Yep. But you were a New York agent and then life brought you to Colorado. Yeah. How did you decide to make the leap to start your own agency? It's so long ago. I mean, I say that like I'm super old. When I was looking to move out to Colorado and that was, you know, that was a life choice. I was with a big agency and I I had conversations within my agency about staying as a member of the agency, like setting up a sort of satellite office. And at the same time, I also talked with some of our friends about their experiences setting up their own agencies. And our good friend um, and food guru, Barry Goldblatt, (laughs) said to me, my only regret in starting my own agency was that I didn't do it sooner. And I kind of took that to heart and I was like, you know what, this is the perfect opportunity. I'm going to be starting, you know, in one fell swoop over the course of two months, I left my job in New York, moved to Colorado, got married, became a stepmom, started my own business, kind of just did everything all at once. Reinvention, reinvention. Total reinvention. Yeah. And it was great. I mean, I love... I love being in charge of myself. The vacation package is fantastic. <laughs> you know, and I, I love that the work I'm doing directly benefits me. That wasn't something that I had at my previous agency. And also in the almost 10 years now since I moved out here, technology when it works, but social media and the other ways that we have of keeping in touch with editors and with the bulk of New York publishing or the bulk of publishing, which is still based in New York, has expanded to such an enormous degree that I'm in better contact now with editors than I ever was when I had a Madison Avenue um, or Park Avenue address. Oh, totally. Um, can you? And your agency is now growing. I saw that you added a new agent. So we you- did. We did. Um, so there are now four agents, uh, two senior agents, two full agents, and an associate agent. You know, we all do young adult and middle grade. And then Sarah uh, Megabo and Hannah Ferguson, who is actually based in New York, and Sarah is here in Colorado with me, um, also do some adult speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's now three of us in Colorado, one in New York, and one down in Phoenix. Whoa, that's all over the place. We are all over the place. And I think... 
for me, what I love is that it means, okay, we've got an author speaking at New York Comic Con. Sarah or I don't need to fly into New York. Our New York agent can go and represent us there. Or, right. you know, it's an easy trip out to California from here where it versus flying cross country. Gotcha. A new question, because I agree with all of that, actually. And I should say my agency also has agents in LA, San Diego, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York. Yep. Yeah. So we're all over town too. Um, and you know, technology is very useful. It is. We actually had um, we had our agency conference call an hour ago, and we do a video conference call for those of us who can do that. Our Hillary, our new associate agent, chimes in via telephone because that's what she can do right now. It's great. It means that we can stay in touch in a way that wasn't available to us maybe 10 years ago, but makes things so much easier now. Sure. So as far as working with an agent, this yeah. is an anonymous question. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. The author says, I have an agent. She's a great agent. She seems to really love my books. But we've tried with a couple different manuscripts and they haven't sold. I know my agent sells books, but uh, just not mine apparently yet. At what point do I give up and go to learn to be a carpenter or something? First of all, I think you would agree with me when I say the first thing you have to do is talk to your agent. Mm -hmm. If there is still a project, if there's still a manuscript that absolutely speaks to you, the story that you have to tell, I mean, you keep trying. I have a stable of authors, and I hate the way that makes them sound like (laughs) ponies, although I do love ponies. My client list includes multi-published authors, authors where we have been submitting or on a third manuscript, um, authors that I sold five years ago and haven't sold anything else since. I'm not one who's going to drop somebody because I haven't sold them unless Mm -hmm. that author comes to me and says, I want a whole new fresh start. I don't, I don't agree with how you're doing something or I don't like how you're working. You know, or sometimes, I mean, you do just maybe need a or new you fresh, do, you just need a fresh or start. I mean, I had a client who I dearly loved, loved his work and went through some life changes and said, you know what? I'm starting everything fresh. I'm doing a new agent. I'm doing a new publisher and all of that. And like, you know, I can't argue with that. Right. Sometimes you need a fresh start and you need a new perspective on things. But for, for your anonymous questioner, you know, if, You want to keep going. If your agent is willing to keep going, you just keep trying. I mean, I've, I would love to say my guiding, my guiding idea or business plan is um, persistence, but it's it's optimism and then persistence. (laughs) Right. I mean, and I have many clients, including uh, some of my best selling clients that have the most books and I didn't sell their first book or even maybe their second book. Right. You know, I, it, it was the third book that hit or whatever. Yeah. And I can't help but think, you know, you and I were just in Los Angeles at the SC, SCBWI conference, and I had a chance to sit in on um, Stephanie Garber's keynote speech, you know, this best-selling author of Caraval who's talked about, like, this is the fifth manuscript she wrote, you know, and mult like went through several agent searches, you know, it isn't always the first manuscript, but everything that you write helps make the next book better. Absolutely. So 
a f- kind of a follow up to that. Okay. Do you think, do you feel like everything is slower this year than it used to be or what? I do. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think a lot of publishing is still reacting and processing uh, what happened in say early November. <laughs> of 2016, you of mean? Of 2016. Mm. And our focus possibly has changed. If somebody's going to pick up a phone, I can't argue if that call is going to be to your senators instead of to an agent. Right. I wish you could do both, definitely. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah. But I do think, I think that there is, there is a moment right now within the industry where it does feel like people are going, let me either hunker down and work with what I have, or if I'm not finding exactly what I want that speaks to, you know, the narrative that I want to convey in my work, then they take a little bit more time. And that's not entirely new. I know that a lot of times it feels like submissions don't get read until you tell people that somebody has read it and there's an offer. Yeah, so annoying. Right? Just read it. And you can be the one who comes in with an offer. Uh, and we'd love you the most, right? We would. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I do think that um, maybe it's starting to get back to normal, but now we have summer vacation. So. Right, right. I just went out. I was just away a week or so ago, and I reached out to pretty much every editor that is uh, considering a manuscript and said, hey, I'm going on vacation. It would be so great if I had a bunch of responses when I got back. And they're sl- they're, tri- they're drip- dripping in. Yeah, um, of course. But some of them are good responses. Like, I love this. I need a little bit more time. And some of them are very nice rejections. So well, we take what we can get. Yeah. I mean, you got to nudge. Yeah. Everything takes forever. But yeah. I do, to answer that question, I do think that this year has been particularly rough. Yeah. That being said, I mean, it has to get back to normal because we have to have books to publish in the future. So... Absolutely. And actually, Jen, you mentioned um, this was a question that came up in our agency conference call today. Like, what's your time frame for nudging? Uh, Do you have one or is it is it situational? It's kind of situational. I definitely nudge if there's interest from somebody else, of course. Mm -hmm. And I tend to nudge around six weeks, something like that. Or depending, it may be a picture book. I might nudge it three or four weeks because it's so short. Right, right. Um, novels, uh, maybe like six to eight weeks. Okay. But it also depends on if there is a holiday in there or something like that that might change it. Yeah, we were talking, you know, I mean, it's it's summer. If at this point, if you haven't heard, I don't nudge people into, again until Labor Day, practically. Yeah. I mean, then you have the problem of, is everyone going to send right after Labor Day? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I do think a lot of people, I mean, this was always... This is sort of my plan as a reader as well. I mean, I closed queries for most of the summer except for conferences, and I am getting so much more reading done mm. so that I do feel for the couple more submissions that I'm looking at, but, you know, that maybe this applies for editors as well, I'm taking this summer to get caught up on the reading and to be able to respond to people, and hopefully, hopefully there are editors doing the same thing. I think it's hilarious how we all work on like a school schedule. Like, well, it all starts back up again in September. Why? Well, you know, it's funny. It's out here in Colorado. My kids go back to school next week. Oh, God. I know. It's a little crazy. But what I like about that is they go back to school and I still have three weeks of summer. (laughs) 
Fair enough. Um, so this is t- a different tack. Okay. Uh, a questioner asks, how does the literary agent world or publishing in general maybe view fan fiction? Does it hurt an author's image or make an author seem immature in any way? Or does it help? I cringe as I suggest Fifty Shades, i.e. Uh-huh. maybe they have an established fan base. Not that I would ever mention it in no query, but not sure if an agent would do some online sleuthing before offering representation. You know, for the most part, sort of a two-part answer. For the most part, I think that fan fiction can be a useful way to sort of learn the craft because you can concentrate on plot and setting without maybe needing as much work prior to putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard in terms of character, because you have those characters. Right, and the world is already built. The world is always already built unless you're doing sort of an alternative universe situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's, there's a difference perhaps, or there's a different perspective on authors working on fan fiction for novels, you know, because you're kind of within that same world versus authors working on fan fiction of characters from TV, movies, comics, maybe. There is an author I follow on on Tumblr who is an amazing fan fiction writer. And I have reached out and spoken to her many times. I'm like, do you have original work that you can send me? Because I would love to work with you on this. Mm. I mean, her, the characters that her version of these characters is has almost replaced the traditional, the, the, the canon characters in my head. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, yeah, of course that's what this guy is. I mean, that's that's what it is. So I think Yeah, I mean, I, that's fair. Look, uh, my version of Harry Potter is 100 times better than Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, if you're querying me, if you have tens of thousands of followers on your fan fiction, tell me about it. If you've got 20... I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the main thing is, is it going to show up in a right. bad way? Like, are you plagiarizing? Is there um, some kind of issue? Are you have. I mean, and a- that's, I mean, yes, obviously that's a huge issue, but that's not every fanfic writer. Oh, no, I mean, no, 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 not at all. And that's not, I just mean, if there's some kind of situation that will show up in a bad way, right? maybe get rid of that first <laughs> or something. Yeah, sure. But I, you know, I will admit I don't do too much digging on an author until after I've read and loved a full manuscript. Right. Um, you know, if somebody queries me, I don't do a Google search. Oh, if, absolutely not. You know, even if it's at a partial, I don't really check until I've actually read the full manuscript and said, you know, I'm interested. Let me set up a call. Let me do some Googling. But I definitely Google when I'm offering representation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Look, I don't want to find out that you're a secret Nazi. No, I don't want even an, especially a not secret Nazi. No, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. F- fair enough. <laughs> I guess a not secret one would be. <laughs> would be just as bad. Just as bad. Um, anyway. Uh, okay. That's a good answer. So first, before I ask the next question, I have a quick definition. Okay. And then you'll know what the question is. Okay. All right. Um, so quick definition. A comp titles means comparison titles. That is yes. books that we compare your book, your book to in, in queries and when it comes to marketing. Correct. So a reader asks, do you have any advice about comp titles? I'm finding my manuscript inevitably has things in common with 
all kinds of other books in the genre. So what does an agent want a comp title to tell them? Style, story, audience, or all of the above? I don't think it needs to be all of the above. I think two or three aspects. But in terms of comp titles, I'm not looking for the next Harry Potter, the next Rainbow Rowell. Like, you know, I want known titles, but if the only thing you're reaching for are the best-selling books in your age range or genre, that's not helpful. Like, I want to be able to see something that's within the last, what do we say, three or five years? Mm. You know, a recent title, certainly. If you're reaching back to the books that you read as a child and that inspired you to write this story, that's not super helpful, I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, I can send one of those. Sure. Here's, here's for me, it's sort of like it's a know it when you see it type of deal. Mm-hmm. Like um, last week on the podcast that is going to air next week. Confusing. Okay. <laughs> um, I spoke to Mackenzie Lee about Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. I'm so excited. I love her. Which Absolutely love her. By the my way. comp that I invented myself. Okay. I'm not her agent, by the way, or anything. I just. No, but as a bookseller, you yeah, have a, a fascinating perspective. Yeah. So my comp is it's a YA Brideshead Revisited meets The Hangover. Okay. Yeah. So there where you're taking a past title plus the, the current I, or, yeah. you know, plus a more recent one. I do think that that works. Yeah. So it isn't really like either of those, though, but it does have wealthy libertines and gay love like Bridesmaid yeah. does. Yeah. It has, and it's a wild, hilarious romp, including too much drinking and random nudity like The Hangover. <laughs> It's kind of, that is a kind of perfect comparison. And when I say those two titles in juxtaposition with one another, it usually provokes a laugh. Yeah. And people get what I mean. Mm-hmm. I was once entranced by a comp an editor gave me for a title. It was something like Wuthering Heights meets the Terminator. <laughs> and I was like, what? I'm How? listening. How? Uh, okay. <laughs> Tell yeah. me more. Yeah. And so that's the sort of thing where I, I you know, I'm, I want it to make me think. Yeah. And it can be, so it can be the audience, like for kids who loved wonder and fish in a tree. Sure. Or it can be kind of tonal or about actual content, but it probably doesn't want to make it sound like you just literally copied the premise of another book. No, absolutely not. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds as far as query letters go, but I must ask, because we were talking about comm titles, if you had one tip for authors regarding querying, what would it be? Imagine the query letter like the back of the book. You know, it's the flap copy. It's what you would pick up if you're looking at the book in the bookstore. Mm. I guess sub advice to that is Mm. share it with somebody who hasn't read the book before you start sending it out. Mm. You know, I think so, so many authors that we know now are using critique groups and you know, writing groups, which is fantastic, but they spend so much time working on the manuscript that I don't know that they always think to share the query letter within that group. And I think that's a usually helpful um, time to to make use of the query group or the critique group rather, but also show it to somebody who maybe reads in your genre but hasn't read your manuscript yet and say, does this sound like something you'd be interested in? Right. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Yeah. Please. <laughs> uh, for me, my one tip is specificity. I feel like specificity is really your friend. When you say something like, 
I don't know, nebulous. Like the world as she knew it changed forever. Oh God, yeah. It's totally vague. It's unmemorable. It tells me nothing. Yeah. But when you make it specific, it acts like little hooks in your mind. Yeah. So like the placid suburb of her childhood now contained man-eating mermaids swimming in a lake of blood. Well, okay, that's something interesting. That (laughs) is much more specific. I do like that. I mean, I think sometimes authors are so careful or concerned about not giving things away Mm -hmm. when the query letter has to entice us to read on it. And if you're totally vague, it's not interesting. You know, it, it just becomes this sort of, you know, once, you know, in a dark world, well, that sounds like every other movie. Thank you very right, much. Right, exactly. So finally, how does an author define success for a book? So other than getting on the New York Times bestseller list, what happens that makes you think a book is a successful book? Is it a certain number of copies sold, a second printing, an author earning out? Or do you look at it as a case-by-case basis? I mean, the easy answer is yes, of course, it's a case-by-case basis. But the first thing that springs to mind is it's the second book deal. You know, it's the publisher who says this met our expectations or we believe that this will continue to meet our expectations Mm -hmm. or it did better than we wanted it to do and we want to continue to be in business with you. So here's your offer for, you know, your proposal for your option book. That to me is success. I mean, earning out huge royalty checks every six months, those are very nice too. <laughs> no doubt. But that next deal is is a great symbol and sign of success. Right. That isn't to say that, I mean, if somebody's book doesn't perform to expectations that, you know, they'll never work in this town again or something like that. No, absolutely not. I mean, but... I love when we get to a situation, and I'm in that this now, we just announced a new deal for my client, Susan Adrian, for her next middle grade novel. Congratulations. Thank you very much. We're very excited. Um, Forever Neverland is coming out in summer of 2019. Her first middle grade novel, Nutcrack, doesn't come out until next month. Mm-hmm. So if the publisher likes what she's doing, loves this book wants to continue to be in business with her. And I think right. that's a nice sign of success. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly gratifying to show for them to show that support with an actual offer. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very nice. And it's people that, you know, people nice people that I like being in business with. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. It does. Um so speaking of self-promotion. Yeah. Uh, it's self-promotion corner time. So do you have a book, a book that maybe is coming out in August or maybe just came out? Well, I mean, one of the books that just came out that I'm, I think is super fun. Um, my family was absolutely obsessed with Pokemon Go when it came out last year um, and still are to some extent. We were on vacation on an island on the East coast and my kids just loved finding Pokemon that they'd never seen before. Kim Harrington is a client who was equally obsessed and said to me the week or so after the book came out, after the game came out, hey, I think I've got an idea for a book about this. And we ended up selling three books in a series called Gamer Squad to Sterling Children's Publishing. The first two came out yesterday. Are they about Pokemon? They are a thinly veiled version of Pokemon Go. Okay. The first book is called Attack of the Not-So-Virtual Monsters, mm-hmm. and it's about these kids playing, you know, a monster-collecting app on their phones, and something goes wrong, and the monsters get loose in the real world. 
That's amazing. And so they have to use their phones to catch them again. I just made a great hand gesture um, <laughs> that you can't see, but it's really effective. I get the idea. Uh, yeah. And the second book is out as well already. And then the third book comes out in a month or so. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. So that's super exciting. And and as I mentioned, Susan Adrian's Nutcracked for all of your ballet interested or fantasy obsessed readers who ever mm. wanted to escape into the world of a book or a movie or a show. Um, Nutcracked is wonderful. It, it takes as his basis the story of the Nutcracker. Um, the main character is cast as Clara in her ballet company's production, uh, Christmas production. And when she picks up the teacher's ancient Nutcracker, she actually escapes to the world where the Nutcracker is seeking her help to get away from the Rat King. That's scary. It is scary, but it's like, it's this magical. I mean, if you ever saw the Nutcracker as a kid and like gasped in wonder at the Christmas tree growing to enormous size, <laughs> this is the book. I mean, I, I'm getting chills just talking about it. I feel um, like I need to save that one for winter. It, You know what? It's, it's a, it'll be a good winter book, but you know, in the way of publishing a book that's meant to be a Christmas title is coming out in the fall, which is next month. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so I've got one, which is comes out August 22nd. Mm -hmm. It is Stephanie Oaks, The Arsonist. Ooh, that's yours? How did I yes. not know that? I, have, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to <laughs> run right down to my tattered cover local bookstore and pick yes, up a copy. Yes, August, August 22nd. 22nd. Can do that. Um, so it's a sophomore book from Stephanie. Her debut was The Sacred Lies of Minobly, yeah. which was nominated for a Morris Award. The Arsonist follows three storylines. It's a girl whose dad is a criminal, a boy who's a Kuwaiti refugee, and the two bond when they find a book about a resistance fighter from 1980s Berlin whose death is a mystery, and they decide to solve it. That sounds amazing. It's really ambitious. There's three points of views interweaving. It's really... Oh, the cover is absolutely gorgeous. So that is soon, and I am into it, which leads me into... Mm -hmm. What are we obsessed with this week? Ooh. So I will go first this okay. time. Mine is actually bookish. So it doesn't have to be bookish, but okay. mine is this time. It's a book called There's a Mystery There, The Primal Vision of Maurice Sendak. Ooh. I saw it you is, posted that on Twitter, I think. I wow. did. That looks amazing. It's by Jonathan Cott, who writes for Rolling Stone, The New York Times, New Yorker, etc. It's part biography and part an exploration of the themes of Sendak's books and part kind of art history. Mm -hmm. It is uh, very lovingly published by Doubleday and they did the art justice. It's like on this heavy, luscious paper and lavishly illustrated, both with art and personal photographs of Maurice Sendak. I haven't gotten too deep into the text, so I'm not sure what will be revealed that I didn't already know. Uh -huh. But as like as an object, it's amazing. That's how it, that sounds so. I mean, I can understand the uh, the obsession factor because I mean Marie Sendak is amazing. I know. So Yay. what are you, what is your obsession? So my obsession right now is Lee Bardugo <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because I just finished reading and I'm a little late and I apologize. I just finished reading Six of Crows on vacation and I had yes. brought it with me <laughs> because it's actually on um, my stepdaughter Kaylee's summer reading list for seventh Ooh. grade going into seventh grade and I was like well, this is great. I'll bring this book and I can read it and then you can read it. And, you know, then we can talk about it. And 
It was, you know, one book that we could both read. It was less packing. Mm-hmm. But it ended, and I'm like, I need the next book now. So my <laughs> current obsession is Crooked Kingdom. <laughs> did uh, did Kaylee read it? She actually she came back. She didn't read it on that vacation, but she's leaving. She's probably at the airport now for a visit to Grandma and Grandpa camp this week, and so mm-hmm. she brought it with her for this vacation because she'll be a little. It's a little more alone time. Yeah, fair so, enough. Yeah, so that's my current obsession. I'm that also getting one. caught up on season 10 of Doctor Who, mm. which I don't know that it's obsession, but it's definitely like at the forefront of my brain right now. Who's the doctor in, do- in that season? So it's still Peter Capaldi. Um, and this is, I think, his last full season. The companion is Bill, who I really enjoying. But as a storytelling, you know, in, in terms of story, it's interesting to watch and kind of take off the fandom glasses and go, well, this feels like a little bit of a retread of some of the stories that we've seen before. Yeah. And, and that's, that is kind of interesting to me as a consumer of, of media of stories to go, I can love and, and be interested in something and still find reasons to critique it. Mm-hmm. That's what I've got going on right now. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Jen. I love chatting with you all the time. Excellent. Well, we'll do it again. Sounds good. I'll talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. As always, I can be found on Twitter at LiteratiCat. Kate Desterman can be found on Twitter at Daphne Un, which is her uh, alter ego, Daphne Unfeasible. And uh, there's a Patreon. If you'd like to throw a dollar in to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash literatycast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.